0: Hello and welcome to Deep Roots, a conversation about theology and ministry brought to you by Oak Hill College. My name is Andrew Nichols. I'm Director of Pastoral Care and I'm joined today by, on my left,
1: Christy Mayer. Hello, good to be with you.
0: It's great to have you Christy. Um, And our special guest in the podcast today is a a relative newcomer to the college, but really not a guest at all. It (laughs) already very much belongs here, it's our new principal, James Robson. James, welcome to you.
2: Thank you very much, great to be here.
0: Um, Well, you really are hugely welcome here. We're we're delighted to have you. And we wanted just to have a few minutes to chat with you, um, overheard by other people about the things that um, you care about, that the college cares about in terms of theological education, the kinds of hopes and dreams we might have for how the college can serve the church. James, let let me start with this one. You've had no warning of these questions, but... um, (laughs) You left a ministry that uh, you were feeling beginning to feel very settled in and no doubt felt very fruitful. It served thousands of people through the Keswick Convention. And um, what was it about um, theological education that drew you to what, in one sense, feels like a much smaller place, much smaller ministry?
2: Ha, that's a great question. <laughs> um, it's a, it goes back quite a long time. So I was converted as a student in the 1980s and... I then went to Theological College after working with IBM for a few years. And it was a bit of a disappointment, in honesty, for me. And I left in the ninety four, and then went to um, work in a church just down the road from Oak Hill here in christchurch Cockfosters. And as part of that, um, I got involved with a network of younger ministers, Christian ministers. We went to wait this conference together, about 100 of us, I suppose. And someone at that meeting stood up and said, so who's had a good experience with Theological College? Not a single hand went up. And then they said, and who are you thinking about going into theological education? And not a single hand went up. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, there you are then. And um, it really struck me that these are really important places. And I heard John Stott speak in 1998 in a little event. And he said, the health of the church around the world depends on the health of its colleges. And there was that strong sense then, if if I don't, who does? Um, I've been fortunate enough to have done Greek is one of my undergraduate subjects, so I learned Hebrew as a student at Theological College, and so few evangelicals had any biblical languages at all. And so I thought, well, who else can step into this? And if we don't like what's going on in churches, then, and we don't like what's going on in colleges, then we have to go back to the source. And um, I also chatted with, um, it sounds like name dropping, it's not, I wanted to ask big questions, Ask Jim Packer the question, and, mm. you know, he basically said the theologian or the college is a bit like a plumber. They were trying to make sure that good water goes to the church because down the track it's out of the colleges that churches drink the water. So you want to make sure that it go upstream to the very beginning of, of that. So I had a passionate sense of vocation for theological education in the mid-90s, soon after I'd been converted and then started training for ministry.
0: And you... You started as a theological educator here. In fact, I think I was one of your first students who taught me Hebrew. Um, please don't test me on it again, as you did in those days. But um, you have then, you, you taught here and have then been in other places, widening your sense of experience. Tell us just a little bit about um of background. So,
2: in honesty, I really fell into this role. It was amazing to see God's kindness. And I suppose I had that sense of do what others can't and won't do. And people weren't really thinking about theological education. And um, in the mid-90s, there was a new principal here at Oak Hill, David Peterson. And he came to the church Rise I was in Cockfosters. And he said, come and do some further study here. And um, amazingly, the then-bishop of Edmonton helped fund it which was extraordinary back then. Cause, uh, and uh, so I started doing a, actually a B fill because I was ill for my theology finals. I started teaching at Oak Hill with no theology degree whatsoever.
0: Did we know that at the time? That's a, sure fascinating, that. that's a fascinating <laughs> bit of information. Yeah. So I
2: was t- started doing a Bachelor of Philosophy, a dissertation bachelor's degree to try, because I'd completed all my study in Oxford mm. at Wycliffe Hall, but I hadn't taken the finals. Mm. And that then became an m fill. And then David Peterson said, would you come and join the faculty? And I didn't know what to do, so I, so I said, well, okay. So I sort of fell into this, and I think it was on the back of um, teaching my, that first Hebrew class with you. <laughs> um, and so I had nine extraordinary years here, and it was just an, an extraordinary privilege to be with um, a bunch of amazing students and amazing colleagues. And that real sense of can-do rather than can't do and so much of the evangelicalism in this country had been I am what I am in spite of my theological education and there was a real sense actually I couldn't we go to a place where I say I am what I am because of my training it can be a real winner and it can really make a difference to ministry and I watched that and people going out and serving all over the place it was such an incredible privilege that was in 2000-2009
1: and then what happened from 2009?
2: So I then went from here to be the senior tutor at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. Um, that was a massive culture shock. Um, it was really, really interesting because they are two evangelical colleges trying to do the same kind of thing. But they were so different in lots of ways. Um, and so that was a really, really hard learning experience. It wasn't held by the fact that I fractured my spine just as I left mm oak hill to go and teach there so i was off sick for the first six months of six weeks and was in a back brace for three months i couldn't pick up a book um but it was really interesting because here you're on one campus site um people have were funding their way to stay for an extra year whereas in in oxford it was you were much more um permeable the boundaries because people coming and going and people in the university and people coming through oxford which was really a very different kind of feeling um so it had a lot of stimulus to it but it maybe lacked the intensity and focus that came from being more like a greenhouse environment here at oak hill so um and and people weren't that motivated for the most part it was really interesting culturally and trying to because they were doing stuff in the university or with students or that kind of thing, and people couldn't wait to get out, which was, this is a great thing, but it was just very interesting culturally. But I learned an enormous amount being part of the faculty in Oxford, um, teaching Hebrew in the university and, um, and Old Testament, as well as um, just seeing a different way of operating, a different setting, that sense of imposter syndromes turning up, um, and Oxford is an amazing place. But it's a very quirky place as well. And there's a certain kind of um, attitude which I found difficult as well. It was like, it's like we know best. We know. And I'd come from Oak Hill, which was an extraordinary place, and seen the calibre of the students and the calibre that were coming out. And I just sort of wouldn't hear a word of criticism for from the university or from anyone for Oak Hill.
1: So then, fast forwarding a few years, mm. you, know, you went through, you went, went to Keswick. Was that directly mm. afterwards?
2: Yes. So I was, um, worked at Wickley from 2010 to 2016. And during that time, some friends, actually, one guy who was um, chief executive of Npower for a time, one of the big energy companies, who I was a prayer partner with in Oxford, and he said, You've got some. Have you ever thought about le- leading something? And I'd watched lots and lots of colleges um, imploding or exploding, evangelical colleges, and that was just for me Im- immensely sad. And I thought, Lord, I don't know whether I've got the right gifts and skill and heart, but it's the kind of who else does and will. So when a friend of mine, who's now in Australia, um, a little support group that I'm part of, I was chatting about the role at Keswick, he said... Yeah, I think you should give it a go. It's not an obvious move from being a tutor in Oxford at, at Senior Teacher of fall to being Ministry Director of Keswick Ministries. You're moving out of the academic world in some ways. But I loved that Keswick's heart, first of all, for a generous spirit in the mm. sense that it was clearly evangelical, but it was a for you culture. It was a generous heart, I, I, but reaching across a broad evangelical world, which I, I, I loved as well. It cared about Christ-likeness, and that really mattered a lot to me because I'd watched things in, in lots of churches, which I thought I'm not really very keen on. And we need to, if we're not Christ like, we've got nothing. And then it was chanced from the other side to think, Do you know, could I have heart, appetite to lead something? Is that something you. and try it in that kind of environment? And this friend said, you know, probably if you're 51, which I was then, you've probably got two jobs inside you. If you gave five to seven years to Keswick, then maybe something else might come after that. Which, extraordinarily, in God's economy, it did.
1: So what brought you back? Sorry, I don't <laughs> to hear the end of this story. Yeah. yeah. Oh,
2: So um, I found Keswick, working with Keswick Motors. is both an incredible privilege, but really hard. I walked into various storms, um, particularly with the town of Keswick, um, and had a crash course in PR. There was, of course, COVID. My wife had breast cancer, and we were... Part of doing a big £8 million fundraising project and moving the convention from one site to another in Keswick and um, some team changes, and some were ready for that change and some were not. So it was a very demanding time. And it was, I guess, November 22, having sort of come through some of those things, that I rang the chair of the board at, um, so actually, my monthly call with the chair of the board of Keswick. And I said, "Do you know Jeremy's Jeremy McCoy? For the first time in six years, I feel in a spacious place." And then I got a call from Oak Hill saying, "Would you think about coming back here to Oak Hill?" Um, And I said to the Lord, "What do you mean? There's a fire over there. Well, there's work to do over here. I've just taken my oxygen mask off. (laughs) And uh, what do you mean go and serve in that setting?" Um, and, it's, you know, because I knew there was obviously pressure on residential training and um, just the demands of a theological college. Mm. So it was a kind of, um, I talked to various friends and they all said, go for it. And mm. I just had a strong sense of conviction that it was the right thing and to do. And there are, it's, mm, I suppose the Lord, Sunset Lord had prepared because I've done the, wider church network world led an organization and something about knowing the culture and the values and the feel of that. I mean, I've been obviously done PhD in world in the academy and so on. I did experience in theological education and New Oak Hill. So there was a sense of breadth of those things and it seemed to well I you know I make myself available and if I wanted, that's great. If not, that's fine. It's the Lord's business. Yeah.
0: Well, it seems like God has woven many threads together to bring you here, yeah. and um, as I say, we're we're glad to have you. Indeed, you. Or, you. You, you said something. I'd love to draw you out a little bit on the <laughs> the thing you loved about the Keswick culture was yeah. it was very generous and a, mm-hmm. and a for you culture. Yeah. And what's how is that going to shape what you want Oak Hill to be, um, and and perhaps the the, the, the church um, if Oak Hill is trying to deliver clean water to the churches. What yeah. what, what does generosity <laughs> look like?
2: So that's a great question. So you, the clean water to the church can be both a theological thing, but also a, a relational thing. But I, initially I was thinking about the theological, but in terms of the generosity of heart, for me it came out of Romans 8, and when Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And if you stop to pause and think about what that means in practice, That means that if someone else is a brother or sister in Christ, God is for them. And if God is for them, what's my default posture towards someone else? And it must be a for you culture. So they're God's beloved child. They're made in his image. They're precious. Therefore, what's my posture is treat people with dignity and love and kindness and respect. Because that's what God is like. And that's people made in God's image. And... In fact, that came to me very much, wind the clock back a little bit to four in Keswick. There was one person in Keswick who was from the town, who was very critical of me and of the convention. And at one moment in one of our staff meetings, someone said something about this guy. And I said, Well, this isn't who we are. This person's made in God's image. And we need to speak about people with dignity and respect. Of course, we're frustrated and difficult, but that's the foundational thing. Look, I get that wrong lots, and and I wish I'd do better at that. But that's my heart. So I think what does that look like in practice on the ground? It's I give people the benefit of the doubt. I want to understand their world and to listen deeply to them and understand them rather than being quick to make knee-jerk judgments and reflections on who they are or what their motives or what they meant by saying that. And I just want to linger that bit longer and understand because for the vast, vast majority of time, people just need understanding and listening to it. And they feel that if they're not heard, then people start getting frustrated or behaving in ways that, we well, just like, uh, you know, we all do. We all as human beings, we all do in ways that in other days we wouldn't behave like. And you're thinking, well, it's no good just saying that behavior is not good. You have to go back behind it and think, what are we doing to generate that kind of situation? So it was that kind of for-you culture. That's not the same as being nice in the sense that you only say nice things because sometimes you have to say hard things. But people know that your fundamental orientation is that you care for the person and you want the best for them. And that's, that's my heart and passion.
0: How do you pass that on to, to students during their time here?
2: Well, I think, first of all, modelling it so you, you you can only model it by picking genuine interest in their welfare, genuine interest in them as people made in God's image, listening and understanding and spending time with and engaging with. And then gently, because it is gently, because it, um encouraging people to do the same in their contexts and to, And to coach people, that's why one of the things I love about residential training is you've got a chance to work over a longer period of time with people and just journey with them and help people to come to that place, you know, actually, I can trust you, I can trust this place, I can know this is a good place where I can be vulnerable and open and unpack some of the things that maybe I've not talked about before, not worked through before, and to work through those in a way in a, in a good, safe place where you can work those things through and, and navigate those so you're better equipped to serve the church.
1: Just hearing you saying some of these things about, um, you know, trusting particular places, um, I think one of the, the questions that I'm asked quite a bit mm. is in in the light of the wider um instances of kind of church abuse and Mm -hmm. um scandals in um, other institutions and organizations Mm -hmm. um, and parachurch organizations a whole host of things is how do i know that i can trust entrust myself Mm -hmm. to this another christian institution for say you know three years or so um because you know we're residential as well Mm -hmm. so it means living on site it's not just zooming in and in, in light of that loss of confidence just mm. generally that is felt, um, it'd be great to hear just some of your reflections on, on how, you know, some of the things that you've just spoken about. Mm. Uh, what would you like to say to someone who might be listening to this and thinking, you know, I'd quite like to go to, you know, college, mm. but, oh, gosh... How do I know that they're just not going to be exactly the same as everyone else Mm. um, that I've read about or that I've personally experienced? What kind of things would you want to share with them?
2: Yeah, I think it can both, because it could be both that or someone who's allowed to carry on in certain kinds of ways, in the wrong kinds of ways. So it's both those things. Mm -hmm. Um, No institution is perfect, number one, because we're all a bunch of sinful people, but there are still things that you can do and ways you can operate that's um, because you have a passion for the Lord. I do think there's a fundamental question about kindness is one thing and humility is the other. Humility is putting your hand up when you get something wrong. And um, so cultivating that at every level, that it's okay to say sorry. I was talking to one minister in a church who said he'd been involved in Christian ministry for 12 years. He'd never heard a church leader apologize. It was a major crisis for them to, to realize that the cultures he'd been part of mm-hmm. and in some sense led in had been um so unhealthy in that sense so that I want to put my hand up I want to you know, not um I sent an email last week to a church of england official and it was sharper than it should have been I can have lots of reasons why I might have done it. I was thrilled that someone raised it with me. They'd read and thought, and I said, I first of all, when I spoke to the church for your minister, I said, the first person from outside, I said, before I go any further, I want to apologise to you. I'm, I said it's something I should not have said. It was not okay. I'm very sorry. I owe an apology. Full stop. There' are actually a bunch of reasons I could have talked about like pressure of email that's not relevant because I'm sorry about or I'm sorry if or I'm sorry that you feel they're not real apologies. Mm-hmm. The only apologies you just take ownership and you you acknowledge it you regret it and you disown it and you know until that, and try and put it right that's anything else is not a proper apology, and so that's the first thing is that that's got to be everywhere that we operate. But that means that for it to be safe to do that, you've got to know that that's something welcoming that to be jumped on. So therefore, it's about a cultural thing. It's about saying we're a learning culture, not a blame culture. We have people are okay to put their hands up and say that. And, um, and that. But that needs to be developed and grown over a period of time. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, but as one person who I used to um, be mentored by said, you can tell a culture by the best thing you celebrate and the worst thing you tolerate. And um, that's for all of us. It's none you can't impose it. It's what you um, cultivate and celebrate. In a, and I celebrate when someone says, Do you know, I got something wrong. I'm very sorry. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's only then have we got a chance for it to be a safe place, to be open and to be vulnerable and to develop trust. And we need to be, look to be authentic and trustworthy. That's what it's about. Because if we're not that, long after, long after people have left their ministry settings, people have forgotten what you did, they'll have forgotten what you said, they will remember who you were. And that's, it's who we are in Christ is the most important thing. Of course we want pure theology going to the church because they go hand in hand. But one thing that's really, so I'm getting a bit carried away because I really care passionately about this. One thing that really saddened me is we have had so much emphasis over the years on right theology. But as far as I can see, right theology leads to right practice. Mm-hmm. And if our practice isn't right, our theology must be wrong. But no one seems to make that reverse engineering mm-hmm. jump and say, mm-hmm. what have I got wrong in my theology somewhere that means that I, can, that I behave like this and no one calls me out and this is
0: okay. Well, I, w- I want to say um, that I've really appreciated the fact that when I said something in a meeting that you heard and I hadn't noticed that it it, it sounded unkind, um, you were kind enough, graciously to point out to me what I'd said so that I could take ownership and say sorry. And I really appreciate that, because yeah. um, it's there's an authenticity about you saying, um, "What's the, the the worst thing we tolerate?" Mm-hmm. Um, and that implies, mm-hmm. in a kind way, being being willing to. Yeah. Have but, those it,
2: but it's but to have those, you've got to do for me, you've got to do that out of a place of a kindness, mm. which is you've got someone's best interests at heart. You're not point scoring, you're not skull you know, it's and that you're willing to hear every bit of that yourself. And that that's part you know, it's not just them. Um, I as the new principal, or the new boss telling you all so and so what should and shouldn't happen. Um I want this to be a collectively owned thing, because that's what the values are something that are collectively owned and not imposed, and you can't impose them. You can um, encourage them and foster them, and, and you have to lead by example on them, but you can't impose them. And I saw that in Keswick. It was an immense privilege to work with the team in Keswick. You talked to the questions, why on earth I came here? Mm-hmm. It was incredibly sad to leave. I love them all right, it's incredibly sad to leave. But it was really special to see it be part of, it was a real privilege be part of that ministry mm. and to see the Lord bless it amazingly.
0: You alluded to the your understanding that there are a lot of pressures on residential mm-hmm. theological training. And we, we have students who aren't residential. We have part-time yeah. students. We have, yeah. um, and we're so glad to have them as well. Um, but do you want to expand a little bit on, on w- what are your thoughts so far on how to... Um, uh, keep helping people see the value mm. of full time, expensive mm. residential. Mm. I mean, relation expensive if people are going to move and and yeah. and in some sense disconnect and mm. and pile their things into a van and come here for a time. Um, but certainly also financially expensive. Yeah. Um, how are you beginning to pass that one out and, <laughs> and 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 engage with people about
1: it?
2: So I, that's a great question, there's so much to say. Um, if you have the chance to do so, do residentially, and there are amazing bursts which enable that to happen, I'd really encourage it. But I certainly wouldn't want to be of the, oh, well, in that case, what's well, no point in, Learning and growing because he wants to be a place he wants people who as as well thought through with the gifts the opportunities the Lord has given to go as far as we can go with the things that we've got and the gifts that we've got, mm. so I'm absolutely not a kind of a uh, a residential uh, what's the word um it's either this or nothing yeah you know it's just that somehow you've um you're not worth it if you haven't done this it's mm. absolutely not the case, mm. but it's a, if you can and do um why do I think it's really precious? Um, I think you can do some things that you can't otherwise do. So it's costly in time, it's costly in terms of disruption in money. Um, In some cases, for some, it might be too costly not to, in the sense they're too... as I mentioned, one of the things is about character formation and growth, the chance to work over a sustained period of time with a personal tutor. You're slightly outside of the networks and the zone comfort zones that you're in, which is actually a healthy way. My daughter does come through Sandhurst and um, she it was a one-year residential training. She's now joined the Royal Tank Regiment. That's She's so on... Cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's and you've got her number, if you really yeah. <laughs> yes. If you cause trouble. But they recognise that there's some things that you can accomplish and do there in that sustained, focused, out of your environment. It's not that mm. you can't do ongoing training in your context. She's got more training specific to tank regiment mm. now, where she is. But it's much more, there are certain things where you're out of the setting you're in, you have a chance to have some sense of critical distance. You can cover subjects and do things you wouldn't otherwise do. I mean, for her, it was four nights, sleepless, um, digging trenches in the middle of the Brecon Beacons or wherever. Um, So (laughs) fair play to her. Um, But the sense in which you have a chance to engage with a broader faculty who all have got love Christ, slightly different perspectives on different things, different personalities. How does unity work? How do you how do they agree well and disagree well? How do you see some of the relational things modelled that in other settings and churches you'll fragment over? How do you work those things through? So you've got that kind of thing about how you can grow. It's like you grow growing your character. You can you can got the chance to focus on church history. What how was the Holy Spirit inspiring people from the past? And how did they tackle similar things in the past? And what can we learn from that? And why are we where we are today? And how can we learn from that? And what have people thought about this in the past? What are the doctrines that have come together? How are they fashioned? And how does that shape the reading of the Bible? And how does this reading of the Bible shape my doctrine? A chance to linger and pause in those places. chance to learn biblical languages. And the reality is, for hundreds of years, it's got a proven track record of delivering um, people... One of the things I noticed about we trying to find speakers for the Keswick Convention was I would often come back to Oak Hill graduates or people who've done residential training, not because I'm um, think that's the only thing, but because they were they had the depth and the character and the ability to communicate well in a consistent kind of way. Um so of course others can do that from other settings, but but so that was something about why I think it's really worth it. And you make lifelong friends as part of it. I'm still in a support group of five of us. We had WhatsApp this morning, in fact, We're all over the world and sustain each other ministry over 30 years. And all of us would have been out of the ministry, but for that group. And of course, if, if you're married and you've got a spouse, you can also have spouses and kids can also connect with others as well and make those friends.
0: We know, I guess um, we're, we're coming towards the end, but um, we know that many people watching this podcast will have... Um, already some association with a college, and they might be wondering um, uh, how they could be praying for us, or how they could be rooting for us, or or is there anything that they can do if they're already feeling quite enthusiastic about it? perhaps some of the things you've said? What what uh, what would be helpful? What would you, what might you ask of them?
2: You know thank you. Well, thank you so much. I mean, praying would be the one thing, um, because again, I've watched from Keswick. I should have known before then. Really, the Lord does amazing things when I'm at the end of my tether. And he's got, he's got things, and I should have wished I'd learned that earlier and, and so on. But I've seen him do amazing things. It's almost to stand back and watch and mm. take your frail things that you bring. Maybe it's the five loaves, two fish, you know, it's bring that little thing. And God does something amazing. Mm. So praying is, is great. Um, we're grateful for uh, people who provide f- support financially. But the particular thing is, is students and just, to, you know, make use of this extraordinary resource that's here. I think that's what I'd say it's just um great colleagues that are here um, a great library, a lovely location um and just but make use of it and there are different ways that can be done, not just through formal training we're developing some continuing professional development offerings as well and um check out the website have grab a leaflet, pass it round to someone um because we really have a a heart to make a difference for nine hundred and fifty thousand Christians in London and um it's such an opportunity that's here to nothing of the rest of the world
0: well james thank you very much indeed um i think probably said it too many times during this podcast but we are so pleased that you're here thank you very much for oh. for leaving because bringing your family uprooting and um yeah i'm really enjoying um your your leadership here there are lots of other previous episodes of this podcast available online and uh look out for our next one which will be coming out hopefully in about a month's time um thanks so much for listening